0: This morning's scripture is from 1 John. Listen as I read these words. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. This is the word of the Lord. dismissed uh I've learned some things uh working under Dusty recently one of them is that I can wear shorts on stage uh the other is I can bring a snack anytime I want so uh watch out next time uh may just keep things on me maybe maybe a fanny pack full of snacks would be appropriate I don't know uh hey we are <laughs> I got snacks in my back. uh that makes sense to about 16 of you in the room um Hey, we are in the, the last week of a series called Live No Lies, and we've been talking about um, these three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and as John Mark Comer writes in his book, these three enemies of our soul, it, it, it happens in this way, that the devil uses deceptive ideas, which play to our disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. Deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. And I want to jump back to something that we talked about last week, but I think is incredibly important as we understand how we might function together navigating a sinful society. And it has to do with freedom. We talked about freedom last week and that there's two different types according to philosophers and there's two different types that that we know and understand as the the scriptures outline them. The the first would be this. It's actually what we consider negative freedom. It's the freedom from. Um, Negative freedom is this idea that we remove any constraints on our choices, that I have the ability, I have permission to do whatever it is I want to do. That's what freedom is for most of us. I'm allowed to do whatever I want, so get out of my way and let me do it. And when we think free country, most of us, that's what comes into our mind. Don't tell me what to do. I don't tell you what to do. Let me do what I want. You do what you want. And philosophers would call this negative freedom. Here's the poster child for this, kinds of, this kind of freedom. It's Elsa from the movie Frozen. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The New Testament authors and and philosophers would say that there's a different kind of freedom. It's positive freedom. It's not freedom from, but it's freedom for. It's not just the permission to choose, but it's the power to choose what is good as outlined by Jesus and his word. It's a different kind of freedom. And Tim Keller helps us understand this when he says this. We see that freedom is not what the culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It's not the absence of constraints, but it is choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Freedom means that we have the power to choose to do what is good, that we are not living under sin's slavery anymore. We are not compelled to do what sin draws us in to do, but we are liberated because of Jesus and empowered by his spirit to choose to do what is good. We've all been in a situation or a scenario in which you find yourself doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing. Or you you found yourself saying something that you immediately wish you could take back as if something had possessed you in that moment. And then you took a step back from that moment and thought, why did I do that? That's not freedom. That's living under the power of sin. And what Paul would say to us, and what we talked about last week in Galatians chapter 5, is that when we live in step with God's Spirit, he's what. here's what he says. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit is what, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Freedom, as Jesus invites us to live out, is not doing whatever we want whenever we want to. Freedom is living out from under the weight of sin. I shared this quote with you last week from Sir Edmund Burke, and it's a a lengthy quote, but let me just share the last sentence with you again. Our passions forge our fetters. Fetters meaning shackle. That, whatever we give ourselves over to, when we gratify our desires, when we give into temptation, when we live in accordance with our flesh, we are, in essence, shackling ourselves to that sinful behavior. And the next time that sin invites you in, it's as if you have no power to say no. You find yourself repeating negative behaviors and things that you wish you wouldn't do, but you can't help but do. That's not freedom. Freedom is the spirit of God at work in you, empowering you to choose to do what is good. Um, I love to go backpacking. Anybody else in the room been backpacking? Okay, a couple, couple of us, yeah. Um, backpacking is not camping, it's, it's, it's different, and in backpacking you're carrying everything with you that you need for however long your journey is. And so um, this is my my brothers and I and a couple of our friends, um, we got to go backpack around Mount Hood in Oregon uh, in September of 2019. We we flew out there, we took our stuff with us, and um, a little over 40 miles around um, the entire mountain. It's beautiful, stunning, amazing. Here's the thing about, about backpacking. Most people, it's like, okay, so you got a backpack, um, you're carrying like a sleeping bag, check. Carrying a, a tent, check. Uh, all the food, things like that, that you need, check. Uh, you have a, I have a filter that I carry with me so I can pump water out of uh, moving bodies of water and, and into our water bottles that we can use, and and then and then as people are running through the mental checklist, you arrive at the thing that everybody does, um, and then people are like, "Where does that happen?" Here's here's how we would say that normally: Where do I go to the bathroom? Right, like that's that's what everyone wonders. This is like the big crazy thing, and it's like, well, you go in the woods. That's that's what that's. What you do when you backpack, you go in the woods, and so you carry a little shovel with you, you carry some toilet paper and a plastic bag, you put it on top of your pack, just in case, never know, okay, and so you're, you're ready, and um, a good friend of mine who was in student ministry for years, his name is Mike, he was the first one uh, to take me backpacking, he would take groups of high school boys out, and he would teach them that after they went out and did their business, if it went well, they would just yell, success, as, as loud as they possibly could, because it doesn't always go well, I'll just say that, um, and so uh, that's, that's the thing uh, for most people that they're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to do the backpacking thing. But here's, there's some rules that everyone agrees to um, if you're going to spend time in the wilderness, especially national parks or, or state parks or various things. And one of them is this, that you cannot go do the thing within 100 yards of a moving body of water. Why? Because I don't want your waste in my water, and you don't want mine in yours. Freedom, if we were to explain it through the negative lens, would say, I can do whatever I want, wherever I want. There's no one here to see me. I'll just go, I'll, I'll do whatever it is I want to do. But that's not freedom because it inhibits you. And the same thing would be true if you ignored that rule for me. We're agreeing upon a certain constraint. Hey, not within 100 yards. And that's what's best for everybody. So as we read earlier, our text this morning is from First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And here's what the good friend of Jesus would say to us. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. John gives us three specific things in this text that are of danger to us. The first is this, the lust of the flesh which is, uh, in, in no uncertain terms, sexual temptation. There are these carnal desires, there are these things within us, there are these impulsive behaviors that we find ourselves responding to. The lust of the flesh is the epitome of love deformed, where an image bearer was made to give sacrificial love becomes an object of desire that we take pleasure from, even if it's consensual. This lust of the flesh can include more than just sexual desire, though. It it can also include um, any desire of our flesh, food, drink, instant gratification, control, domination, and so on. There are fleshly desires that we find ourselves giving into, and John says that's the first part of the world that we should not love, giving into the desires of our flesh. The second is this, the lust of our eyes, and greed is in John's crosshairs right here, but there's also envy and jealousy and discontentment, this cancerous restlessness of our age And we find ourselves with this insatiable desire for more and newer and better we're always chasing the next thing as if somehow that will satisfy or fulfill us john says don't love that part of the world and then finally he says this the pride of life and, it, and it's the human bent in all of us to go our own way to rebel against authority and think that we know better than our forebears who are you to tell me is the anthem of project self. The pride of life is the belief that you know better than anyone, and so how dare anyone tell you how to live, including God. And this word that that John uses here for world, do not love the world, is the Greek word cosmos. And just like our English word ball, it can have different definitions depending on the context. If I said, hey, throw me that ball, you're going to pick up the spherical object and toss it to me. If I said, hey, how did it go at the rodeo last night, you might say, we had a ball, right? Or you may be talking about the dance that Cinderella goes to and loses her slipper. There's, there's various contexts for that word ball. And just like um, the word ball in English, this Greek word cosmos, depending on the context, can mean different things. And so it can mean simply universe or planet Earth, but God is clearly not against the good world that he made. It's one of the first things he said about it. This is good. We can also refer to humanity, as in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the cosmos. Well, God obviously loves the world. But there's this third sense, which is an enemy of our soul, the world as a system of practices and standards associated with secular society. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. A secular society is one that attempts to live as if there is no God. Most people would agree that we live in a post-Christian culture. Uh, th- there was a time in the history of the world in which our, our culture was pre-Christian. There were gods and goddesses and pagan religions. And then there was a period of time in which Christian culture existed both on the scale of our world and in the scale of our country. We are well beyond that now. We are in a post-Christian culture, which means most people want the morals and ethics of Jesus and his word without him. In other words, they want the kingdom without the king. We want want love, we want justice, we want hope, we want compassion. We want all of these things that Jesus instructs us on how to find and where to find and how to develop and grow them in our world today, and yet we reject his lordship. We want his kingdom, but we don't want the king. And a secular society is one that attempts to live as if there is no God. That's where we are. That is our cultural moment. Eugene Peterson would say this, that the world is an atmosphere. It's a mood. It's crept in like a cancerous rot, an airborne emotional pollutant that we inhale every day, an anti-God impulse we circulate in our body's lungs. It's the society of proud and arrogant humankind that defies and tries to eliminate God's rule and presence in history. John Mark Comer, in the book Live No Lies, defines it this way. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, And social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And so our question is, has the world become a part of us? These things that we should avoid, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Things that are normalized in a sinful society around us, are they normal within us? Larry Hurtado writes about these five distinctives of the early church. And I'll give you warning ahead of time that that you will feel a natural uh, agreeance with two of them. Two of them will feel like they're on the other side, no matter what side you find yourself on, and one of them is foreign to everyone. In other words, I'm about to fend everybody in the room with half of what I say next, okay? The church, number one, here's the first distinctive, was multiracial and multiethnic with a high value for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines as well, and there was a high value for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. There are two common distinctives of the early church. Here's the next couple. Number three, the church was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. Number four, the church was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. Now, if we were just to take these four, we could throw a line right down the middle of our country and we would identify two falling in the camp of the political left and two falling in the camp of the political right. But here's another common distinctive of the early church that I don't find on either side. It was nonviolent on both a personal level and a political level. These distinctives of the early church, the church that Jesus began, the church that Jesus, the final thing before he left this earth was establish his church through the lives of his believers, a group of people who would submit their will and their life to him what he established when he left looked like this. The litmus test of our faith is the degree to which we love our enemy. Evidence of Jesus at work in you, of God's spirit in control of you, is our ability to love people who do not look like us. And a sinful society normalizes things that are detrimental to its own flourishing. Lust is redefined as love. Marriage, not as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract of personal fulfillment. Divorce as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows. The the objectification of a woman's sexuality through pornography as female empowerment. Greed as responsibility to shareholders. Gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world as globalism, environmental degradation as progress, the deracination of once thriving local economies as free market capitalism, racism as a past issue, Marxism as justice. Again, I've offended all of you in the room by half of what I just said. A sinful society normalizes all of these things. And the empirical research tends to confirm that this hypothesis is true. Human behavior clusters in both space and time, even in the absence of coercion or rationale. Let me say that again. Human behavior clusters in both space and time, even in the absence of coercion or rationale. Here's the translation for those of us where that's hard to follow, like me. Monkey see, monkey do. (laughs) That's what that statement says. Monkey see, monkey do. There are all kinds of cultural trends and fashions and various things that happen. Even in the blink of an eye, all of a sudden something's popular. Like anyone remember uh, Crocs, the footwear, right? Um, Crocs, uh, I don't know why they ever existed, but they're back. Uh, All of a sudden, seemingly overnight, everyone, I see this in students all the time, everyone has to have a pair of Crocs now. And here's the brilliant marketing strategy by Crocs is they've had those those holes in them because everyone wants a pair of shoes with holes all over them. And so Crocs have those holes in them, and so now you have to have Croc pins that display your favorite superhero or whatever it is, right? That way when you fall down, and you will fall down when you wear Crocs because they're unstable footwear, you can poke the top of your foot effectively. Again, like I don't don't get it, but everyone's got to have a pair of Crocs. Um here's another uh, footwear choice that came out of nowhere and then all of a sudden everyone had. Hey dudes. Who just out of curiosity, anybody wearing Hey dudes in here right now? Okay, a couple of us. I made some people mad in uh first service, so l- I just want to know who I'm about to make mad right now. Hey dudes aren't good for anything and yet everyone has to have a pair of them. I this is not a joke. First day of basketball practice last year, a kid shows up wearing Hey dudes to basketball practice. A slip-on shoe with a canvas top. Hey dude Why don't you get the heck out of here and go put on some basketball shoes? Like, what are we doing? But everyone has to have a pair just because everyone else does. That's how this works. This is why TikTok dances go viral. No one looks cool doing this, right? But we all do it, and we broadcast it online because everyone else is doing it. I want it, and everybody's doing it are overwhelming and their ability to get us to do something. This is why Renee DiResta is absolutely correct. She's a a social researcher at Stanford who studies the Internet. If you make it trend, you make it true. If you make it trend, you make it true. We are now building worldviews, formulating opinions on politics, on faith, on family, on morals, based on what trends on the Internet. If you make it trend, you make it true. But widespread acceptance of something does not make a thing true. Crowds lie. We actually love to lie to each other. We love it when someone affirms our flesh-filled desire, our disordered desire, because it makes us feel less guilty. Here's the best uh illustration I could give to this. All right, we have a little Bailey and I have a little uh ritual. On Sunday nights, if I can, I like to go play basketball with a, a group of guys over at the high school, and we, we play basketball, and then when I get out of basketball, um, I usually go pick up blizzards uh, for Bailey and I. We have a, a blizzard, and we watch our, our show or whatever. We've been watching Rings of Power on Sunday nights, and and so, um, but we we have some some seasons, or we have some times where it's like, eh, we had a bunch of dessert this weekend. Like, should should we have a blizzard? Probably not. But what I will do, and you guys will identify with this right away. What I will do is, okay, we agreed before I left the house that dis- that blizzards are probably off the table. And then I'll get in my truck and be like, babe, do you need a blizzard tonight? She'll be like, well, if you do. You know, but like, do you need one? Yeah, that's fine if, if you want to have one. And what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get her <laughs> to say yes to my bad idea so that I don't feel bad about having a bad idea hey, babe, agree with me so that I can feel guiltless about indulging and consuming as much sugar as humanly possible right now. That's what we're trying to do. We love it when people affirm our disordered desires. It makes us feel safe, and it's a false sense of security. We love to take the stand of blissful ignorance as the moral bedrock of our society erodes away. sinful society makes what is normal according to God's word look strange and what is strange according to God's word looks look normal I saw a tweet this last week that said this having five kids is not weird having pets and calling them fur babies is weird like my parents have five kids and there were moments where you know they'd introduce us to to new people and be like whoa you're like you're that kind of religious okay like like it's just strange to them. In World War One, um, trench warfare was introduced. World War One is is considered probably one of the most brutal wars in history because of this fact that that there was now very close proximity battle. But along with uh, trench warfare, there became a, a very specific medical condition called trench foot. And this is one of the more tame pictures I found on the internet. You're welcome. We're, it's close to lunch, so I figured I'd, I'd let you off the hook here. But in trench warfare, uh, soldiers were often standing in trenches uh, with water that came above their ankles for days on end, their feet literally rotting beneath them. In fact, more soldiers left the front lines of battle in World War I for trench foot than any other singular reason. Because their feet had decayed to such a degree that where they could no longer stand. You see they're being carried out right now. And if trench foot was not dealt effectively and efficiently, dealt with effectively and efficiently, it could make its way via infection into the rest of the body. You could actually lose your life because you stood in water for too long. And so there were commands given to, to soldiers on the front lines to often change their socks and dry out their boots so that they could remain in and this is one of the more effective pictures of what sin is to us. Because sin is a sickness. Sin is a sickness that spreads. And we like to think about sin as being static. Like sin's just a law that I break. And so whatever I need to do to make up for the law that I broke, like I'll, I'll pay my fine, I'll do my time, whatever it is. Sin's not a law that you break. No, sin is a sickness that spreads. Sin is not static, it's dynamic. One of the things I tell our students all the time is that sin never sits still. It always wants more from you. Sin is a sickness that spreads. And listen, if we're not dealing with it appropriately, it has a profound impact on the rest of us. Sin is a sickness that spreads. It's the very reason Jesus dealt with the misunderstanding of the law in the first place. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for how they treated the Sabbath, God's day of rest, because it was created to prevent the sickness of a hurried life. Most of us ignore this idea that we should take a pause and a breath and sit still. And we find ourselves becoming more and more and more and more busy. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages for sin. God's not the one paying you for sin. Sin is paying you for sin. It always makes good on your investment into it. God doesn't have to do a thing for us to experience the devastating consequence of sinful behavior in our lives. Our decision to indulge our flesh, what Paul would say, you reap what you sow. God cannot be mocked. Sin will always make good on its promise to pay. So you know I talked about backpacking. I I another trip I took recently was with my brother and a good friend of mine and we went about an an hour west of here and there's man there's actually some beautiful places in Kansas. It's it's kind of they're hard to find, uh but they're here. Um and so we we went over to a little uh, state park over there and we did a little backpacking trip. And so one night, the second night we were out, or maybe the first night, it doesn't matter. It was nighttime and we're getting ready to go to bed and I've got my headlamp on, my brother's too. And we're kind of scanning the area just kind of looking around before we climb in our tents for the night and as we're scanning the area we stop and there's just several sets of eyes that the light is catching and it's it's reflecting back at us and it was a, a mama snake and several baby snakes uh water moccasins and i hate snakes like uh like indiana jones is my spirit animal in that respect okay I hate snakes, and you won't hear me say I hate many things, okay, especially from stage, but, like, I hate snakes, and I hate the St. Louis Cardinals, okay, I just have to say that, um, get an amen over there, praise God, okay, um, I hate snakes, and so, so I see those snakes out there, and I'm like, okay, no way, no way, and so I just get in my tent, and I zip it up, and I'm laying in my bed, and I had to I had to go all night, like, like it hurt uh, in my stomach kind of, but there was no way I'm getting out of my tent in, in the middle of the night um, and doing that. And so, no joke, as a 30-year-old grown man, I waited until the next morning until my older brother got out of his tent and made sure everything was okay, right? Like I hate, I don't like snakes. And so, uh, I was uh, working upstairs this last week, uh, working on the floor in the student room, and I came across this. It's fake. Um, so that means that we didn't have a snake in our building. That just means that someone's a jerk, okay? <laughs> Someone put that there, and I did one of these. Oh, right, like, and and so here's here's the here's how stupid I felt. Uh, is it was fr- first of all fake, and then I did it four more times. Okay, I, I had my headphones in, and I'm I'm literally rolling sealer onto the floor, and every time I got over to that side of the room, I would jump again. But then, after about four times, I mentally was like, "Okay, it's not real." My fight or flight, like all those senses went down. Like everything's back to normal. I'm like, "Okay, that's just that's just the fake snake that that hangs out up here." And of course, I didn't move it. You don't I don't touch snakes, even fake ones. Okay, um, but I just kind of got used to it, and it didn't didn't scare me anymore. So here, here's my here's my question for us: Is does the snake still scare you? Like. Living in a sinful society, living in a world that normalizes so many things that are contrary to God's word. We ran through that list earlier. One is redefining lust as love or, or ignoring God's instruction when it comes to a covenant commitment called marriage. Oh, my marriage isn't fulfilling me anymore. This person just doesn't know what I need, and so I'll go find someone else. But does that, Does that still break your heart? When you see sin in your own heart in your own home, does it drive you to your knees asking God for forgiveness and redemption? Or have we grown so comfortable with the sin that is normalized in our society that we're just, ah, it's just the sin that lives here, no big deal. Does the snake still scare you? Here's some good news. Social contagion, like Everyone's got to have a pair of hey dudes. It works both ways. And as much power as it has to do harm, it can also create great momentum towards what is good. Cultural movements happen when people devote themselves to a certain set of ideals. Cultural movements happen when people like us look each other in the eyes and we say, these things matter. They're non-negotiable. And we'll build our lives around them instead of mocking them or rejecting them. Things like worshiping our God regularly on a certain day of the week. Things like shouldering each other's burdens. Things like serving our community or having real meaningful conversation. Things like sharing meals in each other's homes or gathering to study and read God's word. It is neglect of spiritual practice that is normalized in our sinful society today. But that's like laying concrete with no rebar or with no framing to form it. No rigidity will create fragility. Pleasure is a terrible purpose. And if we o- if we convinced ourselves that we only exist to experience what feels good, then we will run from everything that wants to make us better. Life requires meaning. It requires suffering requires substance, and those only arrive through submission and devotion and allegiance to things that are bigger than you. If you're only allegiant to yourself, you become your own God, and when everyone is their own God, the world burns. This is our cultural moment, a post-Christian culture. We want the kingdom, but we don't want the king, and so that's even made its way into the church. Here's what Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler say, they're social scientists, and they're talking about physical exercise here, but I think the spiritual truth is just as relevant. Staying healthy isn't just a matter of your genes and your diet, it seems. Good health is also a product and part of your sheer proximity to other healthy people. Who you hang out with is who you are becoming couple of weeks ago, I was headed towards the gym to work out, and I decided that day I had enough time, it was a beautiful day, so I I ran to the gym, and on my run in, I saw a friend of mine, Aaron, walking out, and as I'm going in and Aaron's coming out, we did the wave thing, we both had headphones in, you don't, when somebody's at the gym, they have their headphones in, you don't talk to them, okay, except Larry and I, we have a thing, okay, Larry knows, We, we both take our headphones out and say hi, but other than that, like there's like an agreed upon thing, they're doing their thing, you do your thing, but Aaron just texted me and said, hey, that was awesome to see you today. Go, go have a killer workout. And I just said, hey, man, just trying to keep up, keep up with you. And what did we do in that moment? Just by sheer proximity to each other, we were able to encourage each other to be more healthy. Simply because we saw one another. Our sheer proximity to other healthy people has an effect on us. So let me tell you why that matters. Peter says that we are like living stones being built into God's holy temple, that when we rub shoulders with one another, when we sit down and have conversations about God and his word, or how we might shepherd our families as fathers and young men, women about how you might lead your homes in godliness, it matters. Your proximity to other healthy people creates health in you. Perhaps the biggest lie that we could buy is that spiritual is secondary. We, we tend to prioritize physical, mental, and emotional health, and we see spiritual as being secondary. In fact, if we're going to leave something off our plate for the week, a lot of times it's whatever faith-based activity we have planned. I can't make it to church this week. We just had a busy weekend. I can't make it to my small group or my Bible study. I just have too much going on. Man, this is not, I'm not putting anybody on blast here. This just hurts my heart as a youth pastor. Like the number of times where I talk to a student about, hey, man, we missed you on Wednesday night. Yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't come. I had too much homework. parents, can I just, in the most loving way, can I just say this? Who cares if your student is a 4.0 GPA and they don't know Jesus? Who cares if your student plays college athletics and they don't know Jesus? What does it matter if they gain the whole world and they lose their soul? The simplest thing that you could do to serve your student in the way of Jesus is to make sure that they rub shoulders with other students who also see Jesus as primary. The sheer proximity to other people who believe that will help encourage them in their faith. It will give them a firm foundation, Jesus says, to stand on for the rest of their life. Here's how Paul would say it Bad company corrupts good character. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And if we're going to reap what we sow, well, what we sow will be directly impacted by the soil that we have cultivated easiest way to stay true to Jesus is to associate with other Jesus people who have the same kind of mental maps that we do. Frequency develops resiliency. There's a natural encouragement that happens. There's a resiliency that builds within us as we rub shoulders with other Jesus people. But the more that we live to please ourselves, the less of ourselves there will be to please because pleasure erodes a person. Pleasure erodes a person. Here's what Theo Hobson says about our world today. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Anybody else feel that in our world? The world is an enemy to the soul. But let me be very clear here. Not the people of the world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but for them. We're not waging war against other people. We are waging war against the spirit, the mood, the attitude, the atmosphere of a sinful society that would insist that whatever's happening is normal and everyone should just get on board with it. The world, as defined by its ideas and values and cultural norms, these things spread like disease in the hearts of humans. And so here's this great temptation for us in the West. It's not really atheism. It's more of a DIY kind of faith. that We're going to borrow from the teachings of Jesus. We're going to borrow from consumerism or self-gratification or radical individualism or sexual sec, uh, secular sex ethics. And we're going to kind of create our own quasi-religion based on what we feel we want to have. Jesus is the great revealer of reality. His observations become our foundations. And Jesus, before he leaves the world, establishes his church. His church, he knows, is an opportunity for us to get off the front lines and take our socks off. (laughs) Put on some clean ones. James says this, that true religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless looks like this, to care after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, to not grow comfortable with the snake. The place to wage war against the world is the church. The place that shapes our attitudes, that creates within us the right ideals, that helps us form the right mental maps, is the church. And in the church, you can discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies. You can help one another override our flesh-filled desires by the Spirit of God. We can form a robust community of deep relationships that function as the counterculture. I love what Andy Crouch says about culture. He wrote about this some years ago, but he says there's five things you can do. First thing you can do is condemn it and just avoid it at all costs and say we don't want anything to do with it. Second thing you can do is conform to just make everything you do look like everything that they do. Third thing you can do is is copy to become a carbon copy of the culture you see. You could just consume it to not participate in it, but just consume it. Or you could create it you can be a part of creating new culture. And here's what I believe is absolutely true. I believe the power of Jesus and the spirit of God alive in the lives of believers is the most powerful force in the world. And what happens when we wake up to the reality of our world and we say, I wanna be a Jesus person before I'm anything else. It is transcendent. It is unstoppable. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against my." when we as Jesus people say these things matter more than anything, we are creating a counterculture that is unstoppable. It does not mean we try to be antagonistic or an affront to anyone. It means we hold on to each other tightly. We are the rebar in the concrete. And we form to one another as living stones being built into God's holy temple. It's what Jesus has intended for us. And I, I didn't say this last service, I just feel the need to say this in this service. A couple days ago, my son Porter, we took the kids outside. And what happens when you take our kids outside is it's, it's like dropping a, a box of marbles on the floor. They just go in different directions, right? So Bailey and I have to try to play two-on-three zone defense. And so Porter just makes a beeline for Brent and Connie Malone's house. That's what he does. He knows where the shed is. It's got all the toys in it. Um, and he runs to that shed, and he gets stuff out. But there was a moment. There's a moment where we lost track of him. I'm chasing down one girl, Bailey's chasing down another, and we lost track of our son. And there's a road right out behind our house. It's a parking lot and then into a road, and I can't find my son anywhere. And, and parents, you know, like when you lose your child, even for a moment, you know how hard and how fast your heart drops, how much it hurts. Just the idea of, oh my goodness, what, what happened? What kind of mistake did I just make? So as a dad, I'm I'm sprinting to find my son. And, you know, he's where you expect him to be. He's just sitting in the dirt eating it, right? Like, it's his thing. But what I hope you've heard today is the heart of a father for you. Not one that says, how dare you? I can't believe this. I'm ashamed of you. But one that is chasing after. This is why Jesus started the church, because God wants to chase after people with his church. To be a place that says you don't have to live blending in to what the world says is normal. Living lives defeated and degraded and lives of confusion and lives of anxiety and fear and worry and insecurity and sin. You don't have to live that way. God is chasing after the world with his church. It's his heart for his people why He gives us instruction, and it's why He invites us to choose the way of Jesus so that we can have life and life to the full. So in this church, here's, here's what, I, what I hope and pray is true of us. That as we resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we would develop deep relationships in the face of isolation and individualism. I pray that we would pursue holiness over hedonism. And I pray that we would be a community of order in the face of chaos and that we would understand this is God's heart for us. He desperately desires that sin would not make us sick anymore and that we could live free. Free not to do whatever it is the heck we want to do, but free meaning the power to choose to do what is good. That's what God desires for you. So Let's stand and worship him.